Hello and welcome to season one of our first podcast here at Naomi Wright Ministries. This is exciting and our team has so much hope that these conversations will bless you in a unique way. To provide a quick overview of our format, we will be sharing an interview, then the following week we will share a deeper dive episode that's designed to equip you further regarding one specific issue that was shared in the interview itself. This design will provide you both with your context and with your education. Without context, the educational component doesn't really come to life, and without the educational component, we don't make progress toward healing and prevention. This makes both equally important. You're about to listen to part four of five, Naomi's Story Project. This is a tough part of my story to talk about, but I really appreciate the way Jessa guided the conversation. She did so beautifully, and I feel very blessed and honored to have recorded with such a powerhouse. I will leave my intro at this and allow Jessa to share more about herself and her area of work directly, but please check out the episode notes for information on her two organizations, as well as on her brand new book that just dropped that she co-authored, entitled Leaving the Life, Embracing Freedom from Exploitation. Please be aware that this episode contains mature sexual content. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you so much for joining us for this special podcast episode produced by Naomi Wright Ministries. I am Naomi, and today's recording is unique because I will be handing the interview role over to a friend and fellow nonprofit founder, Jessa Dillo-Crisp, who will be asking me the questions as part four of five in my story project. I reached out to Jessa several months ago in hopes that she would agree to facilitate this conversation because I just knew there would be no one better to do so. She has just graduated with her MA in mental health counseling, has tons of experience through her organization, Bridge Hope, and has her own bold narrative of reclaiming losses in her own life. Jessa, would you please share a summary of your story as well as an overview of Bridge Hope to get us started? I would love to. So I'm a survivor of human trafficking. I experienced familial trafficking and then PIM control trafficking. And a lot of my story has been walking through the hard challenges of acknowledging the pain, but also to acknowledging who the healer is. And so as part of that journey, as part of that process, my husband and I co-founded Bridge Hope, an anti-trafficking nonprofit where we bridge resources and foster hope to survivors of trafficking. She has an incredibly beautiful story and what God has done in her story is absolutely amazing. And what she has embraced in her journey that she did not have to is just incredibly profound. So I would want to encourage anyone out there. Um, I will leave a link to Bridge Hope um, in the comments so that you can check it out. And I highly recommend that you see what she's up to, learn more about her and her family um, and what their mission is. It's very powerful. Jessa, would you mind touching on the overlap between our two organizations? I know when we originally talked, um, this came up in conversation, and it's something you've discovered through both your studies and the time you've invested in others. Yes. So one of the things that we've noticed throughout all of the work that we've been doing at Bridge Hope and then also to consulting that I've done across the nation is that a lot of times individuals who've experienced sex trafficking often have a spiritual component to that, whether it was experiencing a cult environment that the trafficking took place in, whether it was how spirituality was used as a means of manipulation and control for that victim. And so one of the things that I really am passionate about is the ways that 
trafficking and cult abuse are often interconnected. And so it gets me super excited to go ahead and just be able to support what you guys do at Naomi Wright Ministries because there's such a need. And oftentimes individuals who have experienced cult abuse have also experienced sexual traumas and Mm -hmm. are also to sex trafficking. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's something that I oftentimes hear left out of these stories when I listen to other podcasts and things like that. And so that's why I feel it's so important to talk about it, even though full disclosure, this is the part of my story I would prefer not to talk about. Um, I'd rather leave this out, even though I would say in many ways, um, I, I was very blessed. I, I did not have the trauma that so many do. So I'm speaking more from a group perspective today, as well as some personal um, directed towards me, but most of it is from the overall group and the dynamics of that group. But again, I just, I don't hear it addressed as often as I just know it's happening. And it's because it is, it's such a hard, hard aspect to talk about. So thank you so much for being that kind presence for me today to be able to to share and bring some light to this. And with that, I am going to fully switch roles and hand it over to you. Sounds great. So when Naomi went ahead and asked me to go ahead and interview her for this part of her story, I just found myself in a deeply humbled place. And so Naomi, I just want to first thank you so much for your boldness and sharing your story so that I can go ahead and bring light and hope to other people. And that's very much what I see in you. And so although I know elements are going to be hard to talk about, I really hope individuals stay through for this whole entire podcast episode because there is so much hope at the end. With that, what was your experience as a daughter of a multiple wife family? I was always told that my experience, what my experience should be. I was told that my experience should be embraced. It should be um, God's plan. I mean, when something's God's plan, it's good, right? That's what we equate with God's plan. It's goodness. He's faithful. And so I, I struggled because I was told my experience was supposed to be one thing, but my experience was something very different. It was a pretty negative experience. There was so much jealousy and cattiness between the women that fed into the dynamic between the children and caused a lot of stress for us. Um, And I was told that that's not how it should be. That's because the women were not where they needed to be in their relationship with the Lord. If they were in a good relationship with the Lord then their hearts would be such that they would embrace this experience and the love would just be equal amongst everyone. And it would be this beautiful situation. So I also had this perspective of there's something wrong with these women that this situation is such that it is. Um, So it was all, all negative and all very secretive, of course, because it's illegal um, and frowned upon culturally So there was that extra kind of veil to it as well of, I have to hide this. So overall, it was a very negative experience. What I hear is that it was not only negative, but the secrets created a hard place for you as a child. Can you just talk a little bit about some of the messages that you embraced from being part 
of like watching that happen and take place? Mm. One of the primary messages I received, and it came in different ways, but it really was solidified for me in this practice um, amongst these women. Mm-hmm. I believed that women were problems, to be honest, even as one myself um, or a young girl at the time, I believed that women were troublemakers, that they couldn't be trusted. They were two-faced. They were judgmental, just a lot of negative things about women. And again, that message came through other teachings as well, but definitely in how I saw the multiple wife family play out again, they were supposed to all be loving and accepting. And that was not the case. So I saw it as a failure on their part and a failure in their relationship with God. Mm. That sounds just so challenging for a child to experience that. And for you as a young girl to be part of that and to take that message that you're a failure too. And I just want to also ask, like, how did that then go ahead and impact the other women? So what do you perceive or what did you perceive as the effect of polygamy on the other wives? This is going to sound terrible, but it's, it's the truth. My mom was the oldest wife. And with that, had a different level of maturity in my mind and how she handled situations. Um, Looking back, she also very tragically had incredibly low self-esteem and would oftentimes talk aloud and beat herself up and say negative things about herself, which was very painful to hear because I just adore her. Um, But with that, she was less... She was less jealous. She was less catty. She she didn't really feed into those things. Whereas the younger wives were more active in that behavior. And so in my mind, my mom was better than the other women. And that then caused... (laughs) caused issues because I'm also spending time with these other women on holidays and vacations and things like that. And I'm thinking, well, your behavior is worse. You're not at the same level in the eyes of God. And so again, my viewpoint of them was kind of condescending. Um, And I would, you know, in I kind of had them, everyone has a different personality. So I'd have this classification of like, well, this one kind of lets me get away with stuff. And this one, her family is just not something I want to get involved with. And then my mom is this. And so it, there was no unity. I mean, yeah. And again, so I was raised really classifying women into different categories and attributing judgment to those categories. Sure. That makes a whole lot of sense. And it makes sense that that's how you kind of processed it, how your brain processed it and how it played out. And I just want to go ahead and normalize that in the sense of just how normal it is for a child to go ahead and see it through those lies. So Naomi, when you talk about the other women, the other wives that your dad had, I was just wondering, can you just talk a little bit about the ages that you're referencing there? Certainly. Um, 
My mom was the closest in age during the polygamous period of his life. My mom was 12 years younger, which isn't super uncommon. Um, And so they got together when she was mid thirties and he was like Mm -hmm. upper Mm forties. And then the other women he married, there was a bigger disparity there Mm -hmm. in age. Mm -hmm. I know for certain that one was 17 Mm -hmm. and he was in his mid fifties when they got married and she had their first child either at 17 or 18. So right in that range. So not illegal based on state statutes, um, but obviously a very significant age gap. And the other two were in that younger range as well. I don't know an exact age, but I know, for example, one recently celebrated, I think it was a 50th birthday And when I think about that, I'm like, well, I know one of the children is like 32, 31, 32. So there's, yeah. So we're talking pretty young women um, in general to get married, but especially with a man who's so much older. And I don't know the details of um, if there was any pressure on their behalf or anything like that. I've heard some stories. I I don't know for sure. So I don't really want to speak to that. Um, As far as I'm aware, my dad never put pressure on anyone, but he was seen as quite a catch (laughs) being this prophet of God. So I I know that was a, a big thing to be connected to him, to be one of his wives. But I did find letters after he had passed away in his room that affirmed for me that he wasn't putting people in a position where there was coercion and they had to. Um, Again, I don't know for sure what happened behind the scenes. I don't know how the families approached it. If they were like, be with him, you should be for this reason. I don't know. Um, But there definitely was always this feeling of prospects of there could be a new one. And there definitely were women that kind of came and went. Um, I don't know if they left him or what that looked like, but there definitely were other women in his life um, at various times. And we would have different teenage girls, upper teenage girls who were graduating high school or whatever. And they would come stay with us in New York and watch my brother and I, um, because my mom worked full time. And then I found in some of these letters that those women were potential relationships. And I hadn't known that when I was a child, of course. So that feels, it's just very different to look back on. I just like kind of the the world shifted when I found out that information. Sure. It would have, it sounds like created a whole place, like asking a ton of questions and wondering, okay, what other secrets were taking place that I didn't recognize? Right. And there, there isn't really anyone for me to ask. And so I've, I've let it be, but I, I have a a clearer view of what the situation was overall. And I recognize the areas that I don't know for sure. Mm -hmm. And I try to just leave those blank and not fill in. Um, I don't want to make anyone worse or better. So Mm -hmm. I try to just let that rest. Um, But I do have that clearer view of what the situation was. I mean, these different women coming in and out and, 
they really typically, now there were exceptions. There were some lovely, lovely girls, mm-hmm. um, but many of them were not nanny types. <laughs> and so it brings clarity <laughs> for me. I'm like, this really wasn't their strength. They really didn't love children. Like what were they doing in my house for months at a time? It's not really the primary reason they were probably there. That makes so much sense. That actually kind of leads me into the next question. You've mentioned several times older siblings, and I was just wondering if you could go ahead and clarify this for me and our other listeners. Yeah, of course. So my dad had been married to a woman before he became married to my mother, Um, and they were... I don't know how long they were married for, but they had six children together. So it was an extended period of time. And during that time, my dad was not practicing polygamy, Mm. but around the time where they ended up splitting, he was going to embrace that practice. And my mom was the first woman that he was going to bring into that lifestyle and that belief system. Mm. His first wife did not believe that polygamy polygamy was biblical. Mm -hmm. Um, and so she did divorce him and that, that hung over me my whole life. Um, he always said he still loved her. There was actually a photo of her in one of the bedrooms of him and one of his other wives. Um, I know that he had really cared for her in ways. I also know that he was highly abusive, um, in the household. So for me, looking back now, in comparison to then, you know, then I felt like, well, she was lost. She was wrong. And I felt sad for her as an adult. First, I've had the honor to meet her. Mm. And second, I would commend her for that decision. Um, First of all, it wasn't a safe household for her and her children. The boys have some pretty bad stories of growing up. Um, And polygamy is problematic. And so, I have a very different view of that now as an adult. Um, I see her as a very strong woman who made a very difficult decision. And so from that relationship, I had six older siblings. Um, I think my oldest brother is probably around 60. I'm 35. I have a youngest brother who is like 19 or 20 now. So Mm -hmm. that there's a really big span of 40 years of having children. Uh, So five older boys or in that marriage, there were five boys. My brother from my mother is a year and a half older than me. So five boys from that marriage. And then I did have a sister who very tragically died of cancer at the age of Mm -hmm. 32, leaving behind two very young children. Mm -hmm. Um, And I grew up always knowing about all of them, but Mm -hmm. never having met any of them because of the fallout that had happened. And my mom was really seen as, you know, the other woman okay. in this scenario. Um, and understandably so. I mean, she made the decision as well to participate. Um, her and my dad, of course, jointly had to make that decision. But I was able to meet them about a year after my dad had passed away. And that's a whole story for another day. If you can imagine flying in and trying to recognize an older brother based on a photo on your phone and then going to his house and meeting six families worth of people, including their mother, 
That was an incredibly exhausting five days. I came home and just cried for three days. Like literally, I was just so emotionally drained and tapped. Um, but lovely people, a huge blessing to have met them and to have that door open. Wow. I can just hear how overwhelming, but also what a gift it was to be able to just have that door open and begin to maybe see a little bit of healing take place in that area. I am curious though, Naomi, can you talk a little bit about how the polygamy um, impacted brothers and sisters or the um, other wives' kids? Absolutely. We were so, all of us children, so there's 16 of us in total. Okay. And all of us children were so very different and are um, like based on different moms. Of course, like every child has its own personality and all of that. But um, based on mother, the situations were so different. So we lived in different places. Um, I actually lived in a different state from the rest. My brother and I from the same mother and same father were the only two in New York state. Mm. And our mom had a full-time job with a a living wage. I mean, we were low middle class, but a living wage. Um, And some of the other moms where they lived, they, it was just harder going as far as economics. And so we had different social classes. Some were homeschooled, some were not. So I was public school all the way through because my mom worked full-time and wasn't able to be home with us during the day, which broke her heart, but that was our situation. Um, And that was a huge difference. I mean, being in a a cult group and being raised in public school is so different than being raised in a homeschool. Um, There were a lot of pros to that for my brother and I. There were a lot of um, different struggles because of our presence in the normal culture. So that was hard in unique ways, but it also was such a blessing to us when we look back on our childhood. So living in a different state and again, different social classes and different moms with different upbringings, it was just, it created a lot of um, divide between all of us children. Mm -hmm. And we were expected to be close though when we would get together because we were siblings and it was totally taboo. It was straight up sinful to say that someone was a half sibling. So that was highly offensive and we were not allowed to say such things. So even in language, you know, we were full brothers and sisters, full blood brothers and sisters, even though biologically that was not the case. And with that, there was this expectation that we operate as such, but we didn't really know one another. And again, we were different. Our our cultures had differences. We also had similarities, But what ultimately came from that, Jessa, is we were bound through our negative experience. Mm. And that was really what was going, that was really like the glue was we were bound through these negative experiences. And I remember being 12 years old, 11, 12, 13 years old, and I would fall asleep crying because I wasn't physically close enough to my younger siblings to be able to protect them. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt so guilty growing up because I knew how hard their lives were. And I knew, like, I knew my dad's abuse. I knew how he was emotionally, psychologically 
um, physically abusive and he spent more time near them than he did near us because there were more of them there. Um, and so he spent more time with them. And I knew that that was hard. I knew what they were going through and I wasn't able to not necessarily stand up to my dad. I wasn't in the position to have done that at that age. I didn't start doing that until I was like 17. Mm -hmm. Um, but to at least be able to give them a, a person who understood who had their backs and could remind them that they were worthwhile. Mm. And that was so hard for me to be like, I'm not connected in a way that I would like to be connected with them. And as we've grown up, it's, there's essentially no connection. We, we are, totally a result of our upbringing as far as attachment to one another. We were raised to basically get put around one another and act like we were always together, but we weren't. Um, We were really raised to operate apart. And so it's so normal to not see each other for a decade. I mean, we don't think anything of it. It just feels natural, Um, which is really sad. And that's not how it should be. That is certainly not God's design for a family. 100%. And I guess I'm curious with the cattiness and jealousy that took place between the wives when you guys were together, did you notice that same kind of, um, like you talked about how it was hard for you guys to get together and like get along with each other because you guys were being raised so differently. Did you notice if there was like any overlaps between how the wives would act and then how you guys would engage with each other? Oh my gosh, 100%. So my brother from brother from the same mother, <laughs> um, he was uh, the golden child. I hope he hears this. <laughs> um, he was the golden child and he was the oldest boy that was a part of the group. Okay. So, and I'll clarify that in a second, but he was the boldest boy, a part of the group. And he is just a lovable human being. Mm. Um, he has this magnetic personality. In fact, I remember that I thought there was something super special about the front seat of the car because when he would sit in the front seat, he and my mom would like laugh and joke and have a great time a lot. And I'm stuck in the back seat. And so I would want to sit in the front seat because I was like, that's a special seat. And I would get in the front seat and that didn't happen. And I'm like, it's not the seat, it's him. <laughs> yep. I then came into my own as a teenager and all of that, like it's all worked out fine. But as a kid, I thought like, oh my gosh, like my brother, he's just this amazing person. I still feel that way. I just absolutely oh. adore him. Mm-hmm. Um, and everyone else felt that way. So they loved him, but also he was the oldest boy in a religious cult. So that carries weight. Um, he would have been the one to kind of step in and be my dad's right-hand person. So, you know, there's these other possibilities because of him being the firstborn son. Um, and so, yeah, he was treated very well. It was almost like if you didn't treat him well, you weren't treating my dad as well was kind of the perception. And for me, I was treated terribly. And I laugh because there's such a disparity between his experience and my experience in that. And he owns that. He says, you had it so much worse than me being a female. 
He's mm-hmm. like, it was so much worse for you. Um, and that breaks his heart. Um, but he recognizes that himself, that that was true. And I was also very much like my mother in a lot of ways. And my mom was viewed as kind of the primary wife. And again, she was the older, she was the the wiser, more mature one. Um, you know, this is the perception and she was the best fit for him. They were more, she was more his equal in how spiritual they were and all of these sorts of things. So there was a huge jealousy towards her, which then trickled down towards me. You know, it's harder to show it to her. She's my dad's wife, but if you've got me with you for a week and, both parents aren't around, you know, you can kind of take it out on the little girl. And so that's absolutely what happened. Um, now I'm not saying I was, I would do want to clarify there were good moments and there was one wife who treated me very well, um, and unexpectedly. So, and yeah, I just, I'm so thankful for her looking back. And I can see that in every aspect of my story, there are certain people that just kind of helped keep me going. Um, And she is one of them. She understood being away from my mom. She understood just some of the trials of being a young girl and empathized with that. And let me get away with some stuff that she probably shouldn't have, but I'm thankful for it. And it was fun and it was good fun. It wasn't harmful. And um yeah, so there's some good there, but overall, uh, I was not treated well by women in the group at large, not just wives. That makes a lot of sense, and it kind of ties back into that message that you got just of the worthlessness of women and girls. And one of the things I'm just wondering is you mentioned that when you were 12, you remember falling asleep crying because you wasn't, you weren't near enough to take care of your siblings or to be there to protect them. And I'm just wondering, like, what is something that you wish that 12-year-old girl inside of you could have told your siblings in that moment? Oh, well. That they have a perfect father mm. who loves them unconditionally and loves them better than we can expect anyone on this earth to ever love us mm. have that and we can count on that and that's where we need to set our sights and that's where we need to focus when those around us fail us that's really powerful like even in this moment like I can just feel the emotion of that and I can just all but wonder if that's what your 12 year old heart needed to hear as well mm. yeah absolutely Yeah. I am wondering just to kind of move on. Were you expected, was it expected within your religious group that you would go ahead and marry into a polygamous um, marriage or what was kind of expected for you? I did not ever feel like that was an expectation that was pushed on me. I did know that it was a possibility that it could happen. And because I had such a negative experience of the reality of how it played out with people, I didn't want to land in that position. 
And so when I would date someone, that was a conversation I would have with them. Um, Is this something you're interested in? Because it wasn't pushed on people. Not everyone had more than one wife. It was an option. It was seen as sanctified, blessed option. God was okay with it. He endorsed it, but people didn't have to. There was a choice and not everybody did. So I wanted to marry a man who was on that. I can only handle one side (laughs) of the spectrum and not find myself in, in that position. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense just with all of the experiences you've had growing up. Mm-hmm. Did you ever have anybody that you dated who wanted to go ahead and be in a polygamous relationship? I did not. Most of us kids didn't have a great view of it. Um, I remember there was this boy I was interested in as a teenager whose family had embraced polygamy later on in life. And so they had a a tough experience with it. And so he would not have embraced it. Um, And then I ended up dating outside of our religious group primarily, which had its own stress because I, I did need the man to be open to the religious group and be open to the beliefs and prayerfully join the group. So that would be the expectation is that if I married outside of the group, he would then become a part of the group. So it would still be a conversation I'd have with that person if we were getting more serious. Um, but they hadn't been raised with it. So they were more, well, no, why would I want to do that? Like, that's, that's weird to me. That's different. Um, I was thankful though, that the response wasn't, oh, that's an option because it very well could have been. Um, So yeah, I really vetted that. Totally. And I guess that leads me to just wonder, like, what was so attractive to polygamy within your group? Oh, I have so much experience in this area at this point. Um, and so much education as well from the master's degree in social work and, you know, a couple classes away from a very amped up MA in biblical studies and theology, because I was originally doing an MD. So it's going to be like an MA plus (laughs) hours or something. Um, and with all of that combined, I, really, truly believe that the heart of it is sexual. Sure. Mm-hmm. I do. Um, and I have absolutely no evidence for another answer. I know for a fact that my dad was a very lustful man. Mm-hmm. I have heard stories as an adult that he used to hide playboys in his dresser drawer, even as a, a Christian teacher, you know, quote unquote, Christian um, teacher that he would hide playboys and um, he once drove the car off the side of the road because he was turning his head to watch a woman jog mm. and I truly believe that he found in scripture what he thought was an explanation and a justification for those desires mm-hmm. I think when he read the Old Testament he that he believed that he was designed to be that way and that it was good and it was for him to have more than one wife and to have a lot of children and to help grow the kingdom. And so those lustful desires and that lack of self-discipline and restraint was okay 
and he could funnel it in that way um, by having more than one wife. Now with that, I do want to say that he did help out his families. So then that was the catch. It wasn't, oh, I can just go be intimate with anyone. Um, there was an expectation and a belief that he, the man needed to then help provide. Mm -hmm. So the level of provision was low. Like I said, we're looking at low class to low middle class. Um, and so it's not like they were being provided for super well, which, you know, I have mixed views on, but he did help them out. He wasn't very present for any of them, like a husband and father ought to be. Mm -hmm. And that's difficult for me looking back. Mm -hmm. Um, at the same time, it's hard for me to be upset about it because when he left, when he wasn't with us and he was with another family, I could breathe. Mm -hmm. So I would not have wanted him living with me full time, but it's not God's design for a father not to be around to raise the children to be a part of that and to mm -hmm. show what a man is like, you know, how to be one. And, um, what young girls should be looking for in a husband and helping to raise them spiritually and, and in God's word and teaching the truths of Christianity. And um, he actually had his own, I, I could summarize it this way. He had, you know, multiple families, yet he had his own upstairs apartment in another bachelor's home. And that was primarily where he would stay. And so he wasn't even staying with the families when they were five, 10 minutes away, um, he would have his own space. So he was very much um, introverted in that way and wanted his own time and would just kind of pop in and out. And you didn't know what he, when he was coming and when he was leaving. And again, he was a very intimidating presence. So um, no one really, really got what, what I think some may assume <laughs> you would think, oh, you have all these children. So you're just really active. And he was, he was very inactive. He was very much the authoritative figure. And that was pretty much it. Like if I wanted to spend the night at a friend's house and he was in another state, I had to send him a fax asking permission. And maybe three days later, I'd get a fax response, like literally as insane as that may sound. So, um, so even though he wasn't there and he had his own life apart from your specific family, mm -hmm. your biological brother from the same mother, um, you still, it was still very much anticipated that you would reach out to him specifically if you wanted to do stuff. Yes. Okay. Yes, absolutely. I needed his permission to pretty much do anything. Wow. Um, and I have a hard time thinking when I look at this whole practice of polygamy, I have a hard time, I have a hard time thinking that it was worth it for anybody. Um, it created so many problems in the lives of the men. There was so much drama that they had to deal with. There was extra provision, extra needs. And ultimately what they got out of it, if you really boil it down, they got sex out of it. Mm -hmm. And everyone has a priority. And so to some I, I have to understand that that is likely the priority. I personally have a hard time wrapping my head around that. Sure. It, just, it just does not make sense to me that that is worth the trade-off. That makes a lot of sense. And you've shared that your dad struggled with that lust and that 
sex was such a strong motivator. Did that ever, like, how did that impact your life personally? Did it ever impact your life personally, or was it just contained to his wives? Uh, it, it did impact my life. Um, and the interesting thing is it didn't really click for me until a few years ago. So I, um, I had some experiences growing up that never felt good. They felt dirty. I felt uncomfortable. I didn't know what to do with them, but I assumed they were fine because it was my dad and he was a prophet of God. And, um, but it never felt good. So when I was probably eight, nine, 10, 11, kind of in that range, he would come into the bathroom when I was taking a shower and he would pull the curtain and stand there and just kind of hang out for a little while. And I always remembered feeling so exposed and just really awkward and uncomfortable. And like, I don't know what to say. I don't, I don't know what he's doing here. Um, because we also didn't have like a super playful, close kind of relationship or anything. So it made it even more out of place for him to do that. Now, my mom would come in and help me rinse the shampoo out of my hair because it was, you know, past my my booty because I couldn't cut it. And so I couldn't get all the soap out. And so, you know, that was normal and that had a purpose, but he would just come in and kind of stay, stand there. And sometimes he'd chit chat a little bit or kind of act cute, like, oh, hi, sweetie, taking a shower. And, but there was no real reason for him being there. Um, and that went on for, for several years. And that was, I, again, I always felt uncomfortable, but I never knew what to do with it. So even as an adult, I had just sort of filed that away. Mm-hmm. And then when I was a teenager, like 15, 16, he started kissing me on the mouth mm-hmm. and we had never done that. Mm-hmm. And one of my best friends growing up, their whole family, like grew up, the kids always kiss grandma on the mouth and mom on the mouth. And, um, so I know in families that can be a very normal part of the culture and it's healthy and it's good. It's fine. Um, but we had, none of us had ever done that. And so for it to start at that age was really weird for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and he would always say something afterwards that seemed to try to make it okay. Mm. Um, so he would kiss me on the mouth and then say, see, there's nothing wrong with that. There's a, a, a daughter and her father. And I knew enough at that age that him commenting on it was kind of a yellow flag that there was something not totally natural about it. Like, well, if he always has to say it's okay, it's almost like he's trying to prove something to either me or himself. And as I got older, I wondered if maybe he had done that to my older sister. Um, and maybe it hadn't gone well, maybe he had been told it wasn't okay. And so he was trying to respond to that. But it just seemed like something is prompting him having to say something about this. Yeah, that seems very much, seems really odd that he would have to go ahead and just try to normalize it even for him, for his own self. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess I'm just wondering, like, as you talk about, like, these interactions that felt so abnormal and made you feel um, just kind of dirty or something's wrong, 
I, I'm just wondering, like, what was sex education like within your family? Um, because I was in public school. So, I mean, my first thought is I go to the health education classes in yeah. public school. Um, I remember, I remember being a teenage girl and getting my period for the first time and being horrified, like, oh my gosh, this had to happen to me, didn't it? <laughs> so, and being embarrassed that I had to call my mom and tell her and, oh my gosh, she, I may edit this out, but just a funny story. She had, she was of an older, she had me at 40 years old. So, and I mean, so she's mid fifties at this point when I'm, you know, giving her this phone call and she's like, oh, I have to, you know, I can come home from work and I can get the, the belt that I kept for you for when you, and I'm like, what are you even like? It's a tampon, mom. Like, what are you even talking about? (laughs) Um, and still to this day, I'm like, I don't really know what that thing was. And I probably didn't want her used one. Like, can we at least get me a new one? <laughs> um, and so that was horrifying. But I knew, I think pretty much everything I learned, I learned from school. But I had been taught within our religious belief that having sex with someone meant that we were married in the eyes of God. Okay. So there wasn't a ceremony. Uh, none of that had to take place. Mm-hmm. Um, so there should be a consensual agreement that we know what this means and we're making that choice. Mm-hmm. Um, but in my eyes as a young girl, I remember with um, my first husband prior to us legally having a wedding, we were intimate with that understanding of we want, we're in love. We want to make this commitment with one another and this is what it's going to mean. Like we're making a commitment. And then as we grew in our relationship, even when we had hard moments, I remember thinking, well, we've been intimate, we've had sex. And so I can't choose to not marry this man now. Um, and not that I ever really did not want to, because we were very first loves like over the moon and all that good stuff. Um, but it didn't even ever feel like it was an option then. Wow. That makes I would say that was, yeah, that was the most kind of pivotal teaching and the one that really stands out for me that really did impact my life. That makes so much sense. And my mind is right now just going towards just what I've heard other people share about how they were taught within their religious groups about sex. And it just makes so much sense that with the religious group that you grew up in, that that teaching became so ingrained and that when you did get married for the first time, that there was kind of like in your mind, it sounds like kind of like a wrestling match, like, okay, what does this really mean? Or like, what, what did we just experience? And, um, so it just makes a lot of sense. And I'm just curious to know, and this, you can edit this out too, (laughs) but I'm just curious to know, like, how has that impacted like your marriage with Michael and the journey that God's bringing you on together? Mm. Do you mind clarifying which component specifically? Yeah. Totally. So just like what you were taught throughout your whole entire experience within the cult, but also to um, how they engaged and taught about sexuality and um, 
or did not teach about sexuality? Like, how has that like impacted like your relationship with Michael and the journey that God's bringing you on together? Yeah. Um, I would say, so I'm going to fill in a little bit here um, because I I don't mind sharing this. I had a period of my life after both parents had passed away and after my first husband and I had gone through a divorce, um, where I did not believe, and this is so classic from a mental health standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I very classically did not believe that I had any worth. Mm-hmm. I didn't believe that I had any control over my own body. I didn't believe I was lovable. Um, I didn't believe that I really had the power to say yes or to say no. Mm-hmm. And so during that time frame, I did have other um, intimate partners mm-hmm. and I never really wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, I just didn't feel like I could really say no. I didn't feel like I was really, my body was my own. Mm-hmm. And part of that comes through grief and loss, mm-hmm. of course. Mm-hmm. Part of it also came through those teachings mm-hmm. of the man being so authoritative. Sure. And so me not really feeling like I could exercise my right and say no. Mm-hmm. And that certainly I do not believe was the intent of either of my parents, but it was some fallout accidentally because it had not ever really directly been addressed in my household. Mm -hmm. So I felt more I'm second class. And if that's what the man wants, then I don't, even if I say no, my no is weak. Yeah. Um, And so that's a period of my life that I'm not certainly not proud of, but also I look back and it makes me sad. So thankful I'm not there now and that I've had incredible help and God's grace to be able to heal. Um, but yeah, it's sad. And I, I wouldn't want that for any female. It's just heartbreaking. And so in my relationship with my husband, I have, gosh, this is emotional. He is such a gift. He is he has always, he has never pushed anything. Mm -hmm. He has never made me feel inadequate. He has never made me feel like my boundaries made me like I wasn't good enough. Mm He, he's just been such, such a gift from God for me. Um, I would say that my biggest struggle from this area of my life overall, from the polygamous upbringing, the dynamics there and, the issues with my dad and um, hearing some stories from other siblings that are similar to what I shared of my own experience. Um, And then again, you know, losing a relationship and losing my parents. So all of this together, all those experiences, my biggest struggle with intimacy has been showing my heart in it and allowing myself to emotionally connect. So that's the biggest struggle. And as you're sharing and talking about all of this, people can't see you, but I can see you. And I do see that this is just an emotionally, just as you talked about Michael and how he loves you, just how that touches so deeply in your heart. To kind of wrap everything up, I am 
just wondering, like, what would you say to somebody who has maybe experienced some of the things that you've experienced or um, maybe have had those unwanted sexual experiences um, with a father, father figure who is in a position where they're hearing things from maybe other siblings that are hurtful or painful. What, what is the one thing that you would want to leave with them right now? Well, first, I just, I wanted to comment on the summary you gave right there. Something that I is, is tragic, but lovely about humanity is that so many different experiences can still land us in a similar place where we can really understand one another. Yeah. And there's such beauty in that. And it's something it's, it's a grace (laughs) to us. So people who, you know, haven't experienced polygamy or, but maybe they, they had a rough period in their early twenties or when they were in college, you know, due to some self-esteem issues when they were younger and they, they had a healthy religious group or there's so many different ways that people can land in similar situations emotionally um, and things that they have to work through to move forward. And so for anyone who can just feel that emotion, even if the story is very different, Mm -hmm. I always always, always. The reason I'm sharing all of these aspects of my story and being so vulnerable with it is because I want people to know that there's progress that can be made. There is hope to not remain where we currently are. Mm -hmm. There are incredible support professionals. There is a real God who does not treat us that way and who valued us enough for his son to come and die for us on a cross and be resurrected mm-hmm. to suffer and be persecuted. And that's the kind of love that we have. And that's the kind of worth that we have. Mm-hmm. And we need to entertain that that could be true and investigate that because if it is true, that's a game changer. Yeah. And that's incredibly powerful. So for anyone who is unsure or who does believe it, but doesn't feel it in their hearts, I would encourage them to seek that out, mm-hmm. to start asking more questions, follow along with Naomi Wright Ministries, follow along with what incredible organizations are doing out there. There are so many teachers um, that are doing great work in these areas. Um, and certainly if they have an overlap with your story, good heavens, reach out to Bridge Hope (laughs) Um, and contact your organization. So there's so much hope. There is. And And I've had people come back and be like, are you really where you are? Or like, how are you where you are? And, you know, I'm like, I really am. And with that, there's, there are triggers once in a while, but here's the deal. When I have one, I stop and I address it. I don't just ignore it. I don't shove it away. I'm like, Ooh, okay. That's there. We need to take care of this. And we need to lovingly graciously take care of this. Mm-hmm. And then I can truly move forward. Yep. And it's, it's by God's grace that that has happened. And that is what I see in your life. I see somebody who has pursued truth, has pursued healing, has pursued oneness and 
just that beautiful place of intimacy with your husband. And it's a gift. You're a gift, Naomi. And I'm just so thank you for your vulnerability and sharing your story today. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this production of Naomi Wright Ministries. You can learn more about us by visiting NaomiWrightMinistries.com. Please note that any opinions represented by this ministry are not to be mistaken as medical or professional counseling advice or services. Employees, volunteers, representatives, guests of Naomi Wright Ministries may be individually trained, authorized, or licensed to provide professional counseling, psychological treatment, or psychological diagnoses. What you are listening to or viewing is not the provision of any such services. None of the interviews represented here creates a counselor-counselee relationship.